the existence of an intervention power would, I think, fundamentally alter the relationship and the nature of the discussion between regulators and the Treasury. Uh, because the Treasury arguably doesn't need to use it for it to have quite a heavy effect on how regulators potentially behave. Hi, and welcome to the Grant Thornton Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast, our monthly ramble through the ever-changing world of financial services regulation. Uh, my name's David Moyer. I'm joined as usual by my colleague, Gavin Stewart. Say hello, hello Gavin. Hi, good afternoon. Um, so I think we probably owe everyone a, an apology, actually, because we recorded an entire podcast about the Liz Trust government and um, the potential direction of financial services regulation. Probably people listened to it as well. I'm not sure, possibly. Um, and now here we are a few weeks later to talk about something completely different. Can we pretend that never happened, do you think? Sadly not, probably, because we're going to end up talking about some of the, well, what you might call consequences. Well, yes, and I think you probably put your finger on our, our sort of headline topic for this podcast. We will, as usual, hopefully get, get to the sort of general roundup, the odds and sods, uh, the bits and pieces. But we clearly have to start with the headline news, which has um, uh, been a change in government leadership. Um, and a number of changes in policy direction um, and frankly uh, the Bank of England seems to play quite a significant role in, the, in, in, that, in that whole process which I think you know coming at this from a purely regulatory perspective um, you know what is the role of an independent central bank uh, question mark uh, it, it, it is an interesting case study is, is it not um, I mean one one spin on this would be well the central bank was quite happy you know supporting furloughs to the tune of 400 billion but didn't like tax cuts of a fraction of that amount and and um through a, a bit of a strop as a result um uh that's not uh, necessarily my opinion but 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 that's certainly 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 one one uh viewpoint that's been expressed on the uh on the whole affair i think that's one spin um yeah. <laughs> uh i mean i mean i think the um the, the central bank would I think with some legitimacy say that uh, they were expecting a rather narrower package from the Chancellor at the end of September uh, and they also gave evidence to the Treasury Select Committee that they hadn't been briefed on the contents of it um, beyond what was in the public domain so um, what became in effect a, a pretty fully fledged budget with lots of um, you know, lots of the commensurate things you would expect to see in there, but without the OBR and so on. And I think that's, you know, that's arguably the surprise factor is, is arguably as important as the content in terms of what um, what shifted the markets. Yes, yes. I think the, um, yeah, the interpretation, which is that this is, a, this is a, at the very least a, big, a major breakdown in communication. So there were too many important participants and I'll use the market as one of the participants broadly there but the Bank of England will be another participant um, were not prepared for for um, the changes that were announced. Um, I don't think anyone was were they? I don't know I would, uh, 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 well well at one level well well listen, it's, well we could, we could go off on a bit of a tangent in terms yeah. of whether or not you know what people say they're going to do as part of their leadership campaign should have any bearing whatsoever on their government on, on what they actually do when they're in power um so but it's uh, a timing thing in this yeah, case isn't yeah. it more than more than anything i mean i know we're going to talk about the sort of deregulation agenda later on but there was a sense of 
bringing everything forward. And I think, you know, going dragging us back into regulatory yeah. world, um, there is something about predictability that everyone says is important in that world. And there is something about uh, what happens to our institutions that we as a country like to tout to internationally as being you know among the best and inspiring lots of international confidence and so on uh so and again we'll, we might come back to this with the intervention power that the treasury wants yeah to well no, i think to the bill yes we should go on to that because i i think the, the 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 one of the dimensions we need to talk about is how this um incident um kind of might might influence the whole balance of you know independent regulator versus or you know what are or trade as independent regulatory bodies versus versus central government, um, uh, which is because that's a super, really really live debate, obviously, with the uh, the new financial services bill and the future regulatory framework and the the expectation that I think it's still the expectation that an amendment's going to be introduced to uh, bring in the, an intervention power, a, a call a call in power for the treasury, um, and that's obviously uh, uh, been some, is, is is becoming. Maybe more of a politically charged debate than some of us had foreseen. Um, I think it's become very politically charged, partly because of the, let's call it the quasi budget, um, uh, and certainly the Treasury Select Committee. When Andrew Griffith, the minister, came, he said that they were good, the government was going to introduce this at the I think, committee stage, and he's now written saying actually it's going to be a bit later because change of government, well, change of prime minister, et cetera, et cetera, um, which on one level makes sense, but it's not a great look from accountability terms. And you've also had both the Bank of England as the bank, John Cunliffe at the TSC, um, as the PRA, Sam Woods in his Mansion House speech, and you've also had the FCA, Nikhil Rati in the Mansion House speech, and also at the TSC earlier this week, talking about the negative implications of that um, amendment for at least perceptions of regulatory independence. So that doesn't happen very often in terms of regulators being explicit, mm. explicitly opposed to something that is at least potentially a core part of, of you know, government intention. Yeah, I think, no, that, that, and that, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we've you know, in their speeches over the last month or so, the head of the PRA and the head of the um, FCA have both come out pretty clearly opposed to that on grounds of, as you say, international standards, and maybe it will slow them down from an agility point of view, although we can have a debate about how agile some of the regulators are currently. Um, it uh, might not be a low bar, sorry, it might not be a particularly high bar, but you could still argue that it makes it slower, I think. Even slower, yeah. even slower. Even um, slower. Uh, but but the point is that they you know they have been very public in opposing it, um, which is uh, an in interesting. I didn't see that coming. I don't think that there would be such a visible disagreement. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, had it not been for the mini budget fallout, whether they would have been as as as, as open in opposing it. Um, so does it does it still happen though? Does it? I mean, the government have got the votes clearly to. Well, to it, get it, it it looks like it. I mean, look, and there's you know people will have seen. You know, listeners, this we've seen a lot of the arguments around it. The only thing I, I'd add, which which I haven't seen so much, is that I think, irrespective of how often it's used and indeed how it's used, the mere fact of um, the existence of an intervention power would 
I think fundamentally alter the relationship and the nature of the discussion between regulators and the Treasury. Uh, because the Treasury arguably doesn't need to use it for it to have quite a heavy effect on how regulators potentially behave. Um, and I think the other thing that that might be interesting, which um, uh, some some uh, pretty expert people have said to me in terms of how this is played internationally when it's been, you know, when it's become the case elsewhere in other countries is that regulators have looked to get rounded through issuing more guidance rather than drafting new rules. And so you get a different form of, you know, regulatory evasion. I don't know what you call it. Yeah, we're, um, we're finishing the process. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, at one level, uh, in the whole idea of an independent regulator, even an independent central bank is not I mean, that's not 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 died into the sort of creation documents of, of the Bank of England, is it? It's it's a relatively recent uh, construction. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, certainly in terms of you know interest rate setting and uh, and so on, it, it's well, I know thirty or forty years old, I guess. Um, I, I think the what I would say is it's pretty fundamental to how international regulation is set up. So if you look at the Basel Core Principles, for example. Mm. It's pretty much in the DNA there, and I think also that it would have, you know, and you could argue about the pros and cons of this, but it would definitely have an effect on how other regulators and other financial services jurisdictions perceive the UK. Um, now, we might think they're wrong, um, we might think our way is better, but I think it would be naive to pretend that it wouldn't create a gulf. Interesting. Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah. I just find it it's a it's a uh, it, it's an interesting conversation we've had where we 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 observed that the uh, Bank of England were quite right to be upset that the government didn't talk to them before they took a policy decision, but and now we're saying, but it's the the reverse doesn't work. <laughs> so, yeah. so the regulators don't need to talk to the government. Before. Yes, and I, I think we're we're often not. I mean, it's the nature of our constitution, if you like, is that a lot of these things aren't aren't explicit. No, they're understood, uh, and you know, so you know question when is a budget a budget and the answer basically is when the chancellor calls it a budget as far as I can work it out um so hence the sort of the OBR decision um and you know I I think it's just you know, it's, it's just quite interesting how it how it all kind of plays out no I agree and we, we you know we, we don't have the answers to to, to, to where this uh, lies, but it clearly big things are afoot um, at a very um, you know direction of travel level, which will have implications for everyone down the down the road. Um, I think one 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 point around the um, sort of the mini budget and the aftermath I wanted to touch on really from a, a regulator's perspective, of course, is that it was the um, uh, the the, the gilt yields and the effect that had on particularly the LDI portfolio liability driven investment portfolios, pension schemes taking a bath by all accounts. Um, and what the regulatory response is or should be, or we can expect to see in relation to that, because not I mean there was obviously the intervention of the Bank of England in the guilt markets, but from a from a supervisory point of view, there are obviously regulated firms involved in in those products. Um, we haven't seen much yet, although Clearly, there is activity in the background. Yes, I mean, there was clearly a lot of activity um, 
from the um, from the Bank of England um, in the bank itself in the markets from the PRA um, and we heard on um, at the TSC on Monday from the FCA as well. The FCA, this is Nick Elrati in his Mansion House speech again, um, seemed to target better sort of risk reporting. Um, I suspect there's a bit more to it than that. There seems to be a, an, also an awful lot of reliance on the um, Financial Services Board and the G20 and what it comes up with. And I suppose, you know, you could say that sort of, you know, non-bank finance, non-bank intermediation and risk has been self-evidently a growing factor since the crisis. It was widely talked about back then that if you uh, regulated yeah. banks and so on more tightly, then you yeah. know some money, some risk would move would move outside of the regulated sector. And here we are, let's say 12 years on. Uh, so so I think there is a kind of a there's a speed agility factor, if you like. I'm not a big fan of agility, as you know, but I think you know 12 years seems reasonably, <laughs> um, uh, yes. reasonably doable. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of stuff there. I mean, we talked about this last time in terms of um, LDIs potentially falling down the gaps between um, you know the PRA, the pensions regulator, yeah. and the FCA. And I think the Financial Policy Committee record and John Cunliffe's letter to the TSC more or less bore that out. Uh, I think it seems pretty obvious to me, given what's happened, that the, tre that the pensions regulator should be on the Financial Policy Committee, which it isn't currently. Uh, but I think there is something about, you know, not everything that's systemic sits in the PRA and the Bank mm. of England and a broader recognition that actually systemic risks involve other regulators and actually building bridges that aren't aren't just issues based. I mean, I, I, I completely believe that they've cooperated really closely to deal with the crisis. I think the question is what was happening five years ago around this? And I suspect limited, no, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, Dallas of all come out in the wash. Yes, I mean, you're right, Nikolati did reference the disruptive market events or something and, and the leverage and, and you're right, he did talk about better risk reporting. I mean, and, and you know, one, one assumes there has to have been some failings in terms of understanding of the level of risk involved in some of these LDI portfolios under certain market conditions, so the kind of classic kind of adequacy of stress testing and adequacy of risk reporting and adequacy of understanding on the part of, I guess, pension scheme trustees. So there's a lot. So there, there is, you know, the, I, I guess it is regulatory responses. There is, there is um, over a whole range of issues in my own mind. I have to think about what well, is it is is the regulatory response or well, this is a more and better disclosure, uh, or is a more fundamental kind of thou shalt not do this, thou shalt have to do this kind of inter intervention um, type um, type of a response. And I, I think it's too early to say on this. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, and I think there's a real, you know, there's, there's a risk in, you know, shutting the gate after the horse has bolted, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. fighting the last war, building the Maginot line and so on. Uh, I do, and I do think there's a balance between, um, but Parliament needs to accept this. I mean, a point I was going to make earlier is I think there's a distinction between more accountability to the Ministry of Finance or the Treasury in our case and more accountability to Parliament, which I think is a much easier, just is a much easier thing to support yeah. in the round. Um, 
but I think there there is there is a question of you know do we expect regulators to pick up these um, low probability risks and um, seek to kind of reduce and mitigate them in advance because if we do we probably need to give them a slightly different remit and we probably need to resource them slightly differently and probably slightly more yeah definitely. Uh, but, but that needs to be a, a proper conversation because actually you're never going to cover off yeah. all the things that could happen uh, and this was you know you can argue about the history of LDIs and that goes back a long way but the event that precipitated it I don't think anyone could reasonably have anticipated as a kind of plausible um, thing other than you know a week before uh, so whether you expect regulators to cover that off, don't know, but but it gives you a different answer if you do. No, you are. I mean, apparently we wouldn't have a podcast if there was never any <laughs> <laughs> any surprise um, issues, disasters uh, cropping cropping up. Uh, you know, I think we're safe for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, okay. Well, we should we'll watch this space in terms of uh, in terms of how. Um, substantial and interventionist sort of the LDI issues what the kind of regulatory response is there whether it's a light touch or heavy-handed um the uh I guess one thing on the sort of change in government leadership point is lots of uh, I, I guess I already apologized for last month's podcast where we we were talked quite heavily about deregulation and the shape that might take and 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 make maybe maybe it won't now I mean uh, uh that was a clearly a, a central part of the rhetoric of the the old guard <laughs> less so a bit but less so for the new guard so so i haven't i haven't come across anyone yet although you're probably going to be that person i haven't come across anyone yet who thinks it would be a good idea to essentially um you know repeal or reform or rewrite um, all the EU directives before the end of next year, who believes that actually there's remotely the resource in place to do that. Yeah, well, why leave it that long? I mean, that's just exactly. Crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I think to some extent, deregulation at the speed that was being proposed, or is still being proposed, because I think the EU, um, yeah, the bill, the, the, yeah, the yeah, EU yeah, revocation yeah. act or whatever it is, yeah. is, is still going through, um, has always been unrealistic. Yeah, I think looking at all that regulation systematically, um, delayering it and so on, simplifying it where you can, actually writing it in machine readable language that would allow it to be digitized and you know go over to go through that revolution would be a great idea. Um, but but it it won't be easy, and you can't just do it with a snap of the fingers. No, you got the timing. I don't think the bill allows for it to be kind of that timeline to be extended. Yeah. indefinitely essentially um so it can be kicked into the long grass i know i'm probably touching on the 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 the, the fca minutes that were released uh, uh just shortly before this podcast recording actually um i'll probably touch on those a few times but um one of the discussions that's clearly going on there is about the level of resourcing and the allocation of resourcing internally to the the future regulatory framework which i i take to mean predominantly focused on on this you know review of eu yeah, and it's good to see the the FCA board talking so openly about reprioritizing um, because it's always been it's always happened been happening, 
uh, going, you know, going back sort of the beginnings of the FSA, but the board has sometimes found it difficult to acknowledge the fact that these choices are being made all the time. So it's really good seeing the board talking about that and also the interplay between um, dealing with events that are happening now in real time and the connection between that and your kind of three year strategy. Mm. Um, making it all happen on the ground is obviously harder, but but actually it's a it, it is a genuine it is a genuine step. There were there were some other interesting things about it. So purely on a question of timing, the the um, the board September board was on the 29th, which was the day after the um, Bank of England intervention in the gilt market, right. which obviously had implications for FCA supervised firms, wasn't mentioned, which I thought was a surprise. Mm. Um, it also, in terms of the cost of living crisis, talked a lot about the mortgage market, didn't really mention consumer credit, um, which again, I thought was a surprise. Um, and the other thing, which I think is is sort of interesting, is the reference it made to getting the balance right between, I guess, internal promotions and external hires. And I think that points to the fact that they just had this, from what I understand, quite significant restructuring, which we've referred to numerous times in the past. So there must, I think, logically be lots of positions that are either unfilled or um, sort of have interim appointments in place. Yes. Um, so that will have all sorts of implications for how people behave as the sort of cost of living crisis sort of rolls through. And also, I guess, what will face people coming fresh into the job, whether internally or externally. Um, so I would imagine you'll see even more churn than normal in sort of FCA interactions and relationships. Um, across a whole swathe of things. Hopefully it'll settle down. Hopefully it won't, mm -hmm. you know, have a have a have a negative impact. But I think it will be happening. No, it, uh, well, I, I observe it. It definitely it has been happening more, way more so than normal for that sort of And in some cases, I'm sure it'll be really positive, and yeah. you know, you end up with stronger teams and and you know, better people, um, more experienced people coming in. We'll come back to F FCA. Um, staffing a little bit i think i just want to wrap up on the deregulation point i, I think the the bankers bonus cap is still going to sunak is indicating that's going so you know the champagne bars of uh of, of, of the city uh london will be uh celebrating i imagine um because the, the people in the know on this always tell me that total compensation is all that matters um and that actually you know the 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 balance between salary and bonuses um you know negligible you know negligible I, I think value. i think i think that's what we tell people when we're not giving them a bonus though, isn't it um but anyway uh uh so so that we can still expect that to happen unless it becomes politically um i just thought unfavorable. i'd put it out there <laughs> see what happens <laughs> that's not the time to negotiate year-end reward um uh on the, I uh, said, so, I mean, Nick Rati's Manchester speech, uh, as you said, we, we, you know, the, the whole Manchester routine uh, 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 occurred as as normal. Um, he did talk. He talked about quite a few things, but he did talk about competitiveness. Um, you know, so, so, so responding, if you like, to, to the the FRS future regulatory framework expectation that they have an eye on uh, on the competitiveness of the UK. Um, Although I think the examples he was giving were things like improved impact assessments, improved cost benefit analysis, which, to be fair, are subjects we've talked about 
multiple occasions and we both I think agree could do with <laughs> do with strengthening um so probably actually if, if that was to happen it, it might actually go quite a long way to you know, improving uh, potentially some of the regulatory outcomes yes I think um I mean I I probably naively I I keep talking of the importance of the cost benefit analysis framework and the new panel that the um, financial services mm. markets bill will will kind of mandate uh, and I think that could make a really big difference and and solve a lot of the accountability issues yeah uh, but whether it will or not we'll have to wait and see uh, I, I think the, the the thing with competitiveness for me in part is that you know back in you know 89 when I joined the bank Bank of England did supervision there you know, people were already talking about competitiveness as being really important thing, even though it had nothing. There was nothing in the the banking the eighty seven yeah. banking act that told us we had to, you know, think much about it. it. It's always been noise, and the FCA and the PRA, you know, put put enormous weight on what they're already doing to further growth and competitiveness. So. I suppose I question what what additional they think they will do once the objective comes in, how they will articulate that in relation to their primary objectives, whether the government expects them to do more, and if so, what that what that actually looks like. Yeah. So you know, there's, there's and and will the noise then go away, or will there still be demands for yet more competitiveness, which does at some point must run a risk of, you know, destabilizing its other objectives, you know, the regulators' other objectives. So, yeah, I, I, there's just lots of questions in there for me that I I, I don't see being answered in the short no, it's, term. It's, yeah, uh, I mean, you're right. It, it could be, you know, a a a, a change of um, sort of stated objectives, um, secondary objective, but actually not really amount to a great deal of practical difference or, or not it could be yeah. much more substantial and i think the other thing for me is that i i suppose i i just wonder a bit whether we're putting too much on regulation as a as a negative or a plus in terms of competitiveness and beyond a certain point whether it matters that much compared to many of the other factors about the uk's economy and its institutions and the rule of law and whether you know, its digital capability and whatever else the weather you know, I, I just think regulation is a small part of that. It's yeah. not necessarily as significant as it's being played up to be. Yes, although small parts can make a difference. So, you know, on the margins. So, yeah, I think I think there is a there's a role to play for them there. Um, uh, a lot, I suppose, from a deregulation point of view, I was going to mention solvency uh, two has been talked around as a, as you know one of the areas that there seems to be a, a, a definite intent to to try and streamline and make more UK friendly, potentially less 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 EU heavy handed. Uh, and there was a consultation paper that's come out in relation to that, although it only addresses the reporting burden. So it tries to simplify reporting. It doesn't really get to the, the heart of the sort of requirements themselves. But um, just to flag, there was a bit of activity there. Right. That's enough about whatever the hell's going on. The serious stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, let's, let's, let's do our, quick, our usual run through of, of other news. And I was going to start with the cost of living crisis. And it, and it comes to something that the that, that's now other news <laughs> rather than the headline. Um, that says something about the situation we're in potentially. Um, 
you mentioned earlier that the, the 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 FCA board and, and the other places actually TSC I know have been talking a lot about mortgages. They have. Um, to the exclusion of everything else, do you think? I mean, is that is that is that is that the most politically sensitive, therefore biggest pain point? Well, again, I think it goes back to you know the 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 non-budget and what's been happening to interest rates and the impact that had on on the mortgage market with lots of mortgages being withdrawn at yeah. least for a while. I think they're coming back in from the sort of recent select committee evidence. And there's beginning to be more comparisons with what happened during the financial crisis, what happened in the in the early 90s uh, when we came out of the exchange rate mechanism or rejected from it. And indeed, some of the crises of the of the sort of 70s going right back. I saw an interesting article in the Financial Times a while back. Um, I think one of the one of the things for me is there seems to be quite a lot of confidence about um, the market is in a much better place. It's structurally different because we have all these fixed rate mortgages discuss and uh, regulation is much better. We have better forbearance tools and so on. And I'm sure all that's true. I, I suppose I I do still think that it's. I'm always wary of making exact comparisons with things that have happened previously because you know there might, might be similarities, but things are in and of themselves, and I think it can be dangerous um, to assume that they're like something else. Uh, so I do worry that no one, even at the TSC, no one really explored what would happen if uh, housing um, house prices fell and no one really explored what would happen if there was a significant jump in unemployment uh, because obviously that has a relationship on the affordability test yeah. and who can meet it when they come off their fixed rate mortgages which I think you know scary numbers of people are due to do before the end of 2023 and the everyone seems to think the recession is going to last that long too so there's a whole we might be fine. Hopefully we are. But there's you know that there are plausible things that mm. could go wrong that it doesn't feel we're necessarily that well prepared for in a regulatory sense yet. Yes. Yeah. I. Yeah. Uh, and maybe things need to get worse before you know, meaningful interventions take place. I know. You know, the FCA communicated to, to, to lenders they need to they need to, you know, Step up to the needs of their borrowers to be responsive to 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 uh, difficult circumstances. They might might find them in so sort of the platitudes the platitudes end of the end of the regulatory process. I know we we also saw we saw a couple of things which which I got to about yeah you talk about agility but and, and some things sort of take take a few months to to come out. So we saw we saw we saw um a pretty much whilst the whole gilt yields and interest rate things was taking shape um. The FCA published its borrowers in financial difficulty following the coronavirus pandemic yes. uh, paper. Um, and I get the key point there is it's several months old in terms of the data. It's, it's, it's looking at you know, the impacts of the lockdowns predominantly on people's financial circumstances. And yeah, surprise, surprise, found that um, uh, there's a lot more uh, you know, uh, vulnerability involved. And the, the work actually involved looking at 65 different lenders, so not just mortgage lenders. Uh, mostly consumer credit, actually, and uh, it came back with findings that actually sound incredibly familiar with findings I've looked at. Over the Something like 30% of firms had sort of, you know, done <coughs> done what should have been expected. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, half, half, no. half, half, well, half, half of them had were not, in the FCA's views, engaging in effective conversations around the circumstances, you know, individual conversations, tailored solutions for people in arrears, et cetera. Those, those kind of concepts, which are getting very familiar. I think there were 12 of those 65 firms now doing past business reviews, according to that, to right. the FCA's paper. So there's, there's what look like, look like they announced some, some, a few million pounds worth of compensation being paid, although it was right, it was over like 50, 50 something thousand dollars. So yeah, I think it came out something months. like 200 pounds each. Well, so, it could be a lot of money depending it, it, on what you're talking about. But it, I, I suppose I thought my overwhelming sense was that I thought it was just actually quite a small sample. And yeah. if you ex, if you start extrapolating that, you get scary numbers really quite quickly. You know, I, I just worry that actually there'll be more of those to come and we'll be rolling through this sort of um, sequence of reviews because this is this yeah. was COVID, as you say moving into a cost of living crisis and when the FCA is relying on firms to, if you like, almost pre-introduce the consumer duty, which they kind of have started implying that firms should be implementing consumer duty standards, you know, now-ish, as opposed to from next yeah. summer. Uh, it just feels like we're in a slightly messy territory. No, you're right. I mean, uh, half of the firms they looked at are not doing well, the FCA felt was a compliant job, so uh, in dealing with customers in financial difficulties. So, yeah, it's it's, it's and given given the, the the prevailing cost of living situation, it, you know, they, they can't not do more work in that space. It's it's uh, it's uh, um, it's clearly going to be after something they they do uh, a broader exercise on. Let's let's move on. I mean, I, I, uh, the FCA produced this is quite a change attack, quite an interesting one, I think. The a discussion paper on big tech, specifically the the potential benefits and or harms of big tech entering the retail financial services sector in a major way. We know we know big tech is already a bit of a player, but this is kind of looking at the possibility they become much more active, particularly in payments, deposit taking, consumer credit insurance. So there was a so the the paper looked at each of the um each of those sectors in turn and and the kind of business models that big tech might pursue. And the potential pros and cons of those. Um, it was an interesting paper. I mean, I know, you know, why now and not ten years ago, probably, possibly. But um, well, I think fine. I think five, Ken would be would be asking a bit more. Well, but, well, but it's good to see. That's true, actually. So the, so the, the five they 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 specific specify five big tech players that they consider as as uh, you know, potential players: Apple, Google, Microsoft, Meta, Facebook, and, and Amazon. Meta busy making people redundant at the moment, so they might not be a player. But the um, uh, but the I guess I guess I guess well, it was, so it is a pure discussion paper. That's that's one thing. So, yeah, but it's meant to be a prelude for a potential strategy paper to follow. Um, and I think my takeaways from it were, they basically said it should be a good thing in terms of uh, innovation and outcomes to customers might be improved. But um, these big tech players have a position whereby they might be able to dominate the market in an anti-competitive way. Shock horror. Who would have thought, who would have ever accused Google of dominating a market in an anti-competitive way? Um, uh, by virtue of the fact they, they're, they, they're so rich that they can afford to cross-subsidise and they have so much data, they potentially can, can use that in, in sort of pricing and product design, et cetera, and, and targeting marketing, et cetera, in a way that, that no one else can compete with, which I think is probably a pretty sensible piece of analysis, I would suggest. Yes, I mean, I think 
it's been it's been coming for a while, as you suggest. Uh, I, I think that the scale of these firms is pretty, you know, they're the biggest firms on the planet to a large degree. And I think their, you know, their ability to leverage that into financial services is obvious. I think their lobbying power is um, well known. Their use of data, again, we've sort of talked about. Um, I think it's it's also just really interesting in terms of how it takes financial services beyond its you know, normal remit of, I mean, I know we've had a discussion about supermarkets going back yes. 25, 30 years, um, but we are not talking about um, organizations that are primarily financial services firms that are something else, but do financial services on the side that at the same time is enormous. Um, I, you know, so I think that's really interesting, and particularly as you move into you know the payment stuff and the, I suppose the financialization of other parts of our lives, where everything becomes in effect, you know, sort of software as a service. So yeah. that, you know, it, it's 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 all kind of a financial contract, and then people do stuff behind the scenes for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, when I was reading the paper, I was thinking all this stuff about being you know access to individuals data and knowledge of their wider life you know the, the extent to which that would be a competitive advantage i thought that that's that you know that well in that case sainsbury's bank should should have cleaned up shouldn't it? i mean you know the supermarkets well i think the, the, the extent of data is probably a bit different and sainsbury's i don't think has ever been amazon in terms of scale no no you are I mean, yeah one of the key differences you're absolutely right you know mr sainsbury was never jeff bezos absolutely yeah. the, the amount of resources involved in the, the, the scale is, is is different you're absolutely right so maybe it will play out more differently uh, mm. in this case okay um so that's a deep so it's start of a long road you know the consultation discussion feedback next year expect expectation of a of a strategy to follow. I mean, I think the other thing that's worth watching is how this plays into the operational resilience agenda, because obviously, you know, banks hold their data in clouds, which are owned by these same companies and regulators are looking for ways to at least have a window into those, you know, AWS and whoever else. And, uh, you know, so they can provide, you know, they can, they can get confidence in terms of their resilience and so on. Yeah. So I think that this is all a very complex agenda that will, you know, will, yeah. will evolve over the coming years. Um, moving on, FCA also produced this time consultation paper, so new rules, upcoming new rules on uh, SDR, that's sustainability disclosure requirements. Um, that's around, I mean, this is all kind of concerns over greenwashing and investment funds and portfolio yeah. management, move the risk that, that, that investment funds can be missold in terms of their green credentials. Uh, it's interesting, of course, because there were similar initiatives, the SEC in the States yeah. uh, and in, in Europe, obviously, with their S, uh, SFDR. Uh, and so one of the things you'll see in this consultation paper is a mapping exercise. So here, here are the UK labels, and this is how they would map into the, the US and the EU labels. Um, uh, I think they're just trying to show some international connectivity, although the terminology is you know, uniquely that okay. felt too complicated for me. I'd like to I'd like to think there was a better answer. And I, I guess the other thing that, that's slightly beginning to worry me is that regulation is being asked to carry too much of the burden. It clearly has a part to play, but too much of a burden in the sense that governments are struggling to agree politically to do yeah. what they all say they want to do. Um, and then there's and in the absence of that, re regulation becomes 
too big a part of the overall response. Yes. Um, and I don't think that will help regulators down the road because they, they can't control a lot of the things that go into this. They have their part to play in greenwashing because ultimately it's about market integrity. Um, but but it's not the only thing at play. No, I got you know, I have a personal pet theory that I can see a day when it might actually be a political battleground, in which case you know, the regulator might find themselves in the middle of that. Um, but uh, but that's a that's a wait and see. Um, yeah, so I mean, so the, the labels that so there's a lot that the trading one hasn't read yet. It's, it's, it's a largely sort of principles. Here are principles you need to follow. Here are, you need to have governance. You need to have clear objectives. You need to have internal monitoring. So it's sort of principles level piece of regulation and and based on your own internal assessment you get to use labels like well not like exactly like these sustainable focus sustainable improvers or sustainable impact which i think are completely clear i know exactly what those mean um so it might take a bit of getting used to i guess in terms of in terms of those new labels but i, I think one of the most interesting things for me is there's, there's a clear um anti-greenwashing clause in it so uh, it's a general rule saying any sustainability related claim by any regulated firm must meet the sort of clear, clear, fair, and not misleading standards. Standards. So, so I guess that's the catch-all that allowed would allow the regulator to, to to go after a regulated firm. Yeah, I mean there'll be a huge question about what the regulator's appetite is to take um, formal action in, in this space because it won't be, um, you know, it won't be quick and it won't be cheap. No, um, the yeah, enforcement, yeah. you know, because you'll have there'll be big companies by definition, and and uh, you know, again, you come back to the age-old question of where do you really want the resources yeah. to go? Yeah, is it uh, some some aging hippie has bought a fund that's not as green as they thought versus someone who's lost their home? So that's a bit of an extreme example, I should, uh, but but there you go. Um, the uh, we're saying that the, there's a DP element discussion paper element to the, that that CP, which is talks about. Uh, over time, extending these requirements to to pension products and other investment products, which is funds predominantly at this stage. So, and it's and the, the uh, FCA frankly say this is the beginning of the journey. So you know they they, they, they this is a regime that uh, is likely to extend over time. There are a lot of journeys at the moment. There are, yeah. yeah. So so well, Nicky Arati was, but yeah, but, but they're agile journeys, aren't they? So because as mentioned, how speechy was uh, agile and very focused on outcomes. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, and again, at the TSC, there was lots of stuff around, you know, measuring these and so on. Um, it's worth noting that the outcomes for the consumer investment strategy a year after it was introduced, three of the four of them have gone the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, so I think that's fine. It's all to do with the macro economy. It's not stuff the regulator has a lot of control over, but that does work both ways. Yeah. So, you know, the these are things to kind of watch, but, you know, and they can be useful evidence, but they're rarely going to prove that the regulator has done a good or bad job. I think that will always be a matter of much more sort of subjective judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, um, yes, I mean, that was our view of the, the outcomes as they were being published uh, in various points in time where, you know, the regulator doesn't control these, the, the macro economy can blow a hole through them. Um, in, in five minutes flat, which is kind of what's happened. Um, other news, Mark Stewart, the long-serving long head of enforcement, um, executive director of enforcement, uh, the FCA is going to be leaving in the spring. So that's a, a changing the guard. He seems like he's been a fixture for a long, long time now. I think it's 20, um, maybe early 2014. Right. Okay. 
um, and, and I noticed they're going to do a global search. Yes. So we can, you know, um, keep an eye out for that. Um, uh, I think Mark, Mark's Australian came by Hong Kong. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. OK. Yes. Well, I, I think yeah, job creations for Australian is, is Australians is, is, is an important thing we should be focused on. Um, the FCA annual public meeting took place on on virtual. It was entirely virtual, though, wasn't it? Yes. Well, it had been postponed because of the because of um, the morning period after um, after the Queen's death, right. um, and it was you know there was a lot of information in it, um, a lot of questions. It sounded like many of the answers had been sort of pre-prepared, which meant they were more comprehensive. But um, and that was really good. Um, but I did find the overall thing a bit flat. Um, so I hope it, it it's able to go back and be, I guess, hybrid in our new world um, next year. Uh, and and there's a bit more chance. You know, it it feels a bit more kind of, want a better word, edgy. Yeah. I think one of these things is that is that you know. To be accountable, you have to feel it's right that you feel under a, a bit of kind of direct pressure. Well, I mean, if you can't if you can't throw a can of baked beans over the head of the chair of the chair of the organisation, what's the point? I mean, that's 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 anyway. OK, I was thinking more in terms of <laughs> whether they answered the question. Or oh, not. I see. I know, so, no, I'm, just, I'm making a statement, Gavin. I'm, I'm, I'm protecting everyone's future. Right. Quick roundup on the enforcement cases, because we, we like to we like to end our podcast with a roundup of the misery of, um, of people being fined. Barclays got um, fined fifty million pounds um, in relation to the Qatari deal that bailed them out in two thousand and eight. But they're taking it to the tribunal. Oh yes, that's right. They, they, so the final notice has been issued with a caveat: this is going to the upper tribunal. So Barclays are appealing it. Um, I mean, this is. Uh, I mean, this is to do with you know what's what they told the regulator at the time. There was there was a uh, was it 322 million pounds worth of uh, agency services payments made to various Qatari organisations in return for the uh, the capital injection. You know, for, uh, so it does it did look a little um, a little suspicious, but but it comes down to you know failure to communicate effectively with the regulator. Um, do you think they think Barclays have got a chance in the tribunal? Um, I don't know. No, me neither. Uh, we'll, but we will we'll be watching. Uh, got nothing to do with the World Cup. That's the main thing. No, that's that's true. That's true. Well, no, I, I, I don't know. Some of that money probably might have ended up in FIFA's pockets. Actually, anyway. So um, uh, it's yes, and I suppose the other thing to say about that case is it only took 14 years to um, to uh, to get to this point. So. Um, although it was put on hold for quite a while when the while the, uh, the serious fraud office took a look at it. Um, other ones are much smaller. Uh, Gatehouse Bank was fined one and a half million for poor anti-money laundering checks uh, dating back to 2014 to 2017. Um, and and um, if you read that fine notice, it's, it's fairly routine stuff, I would suggest, around um, uh, you know, the, the, the due diligence you do when opening an account and, and sorts of, uh, you know, the, the, for high-risk jurisdictions, PEPs, etc. Um, I think my big takeaway reading the final notice was it looked to be one of those situations where concerns over the level of checking were flagged internally, so internal order, etc. And others were reporting it to the board, and they didn't do anything with that information. So, um, so I think that probably that failure to act on red flags um, has probably I mean a contributor. That's my outside of view of that. Um, 
Um, and the final thing, I guess it's not strictly enforcement, but the FCA have claimed that they, they took down or challenged over 4,000 financial promotions in quarter three, which suggests they are as busy as ever in terms of scanning the web and, and pulling people's fin proms. Yes, I, I think I think that's great, and I th I, but I think there's you know, I mean I know you have a thing about about stats, which which I largely agree with, but there is a kind of you know which four thousand financial promotions, and I think there is you know that that is a huge world out there in terms of you know potential frauds, attempted frauds, and so on, and I don't know whether that's a big number or a small number, although it's clearly bigger than it was before. Yes. Okay, we're going to wrap up there. I think we've gone on longer than we might otherwise have done, but you know. I think it's been one of those months though hasn't yeah, it? yeah well and i almost feel like we had to this is like re-recording last month's podcast almost this is like that last month's podcast never happened let's pretend that never happened let's just go with this one um i don't know whether i'll be saying the same thing in a month's time um suffice it to say they will be back in a month's time um where we'll have the world cup and uh the one into christmas to talk about actually indeed 12 days of oh yes yes we are going to uh do our next podcast on the 12 days of regulation um and uh i'm quite looking forward to the uh to the, the 12 lords leaping analogy we'll have to work on that one it could be a long it could be a long month of prep for that thank you for everyone who stayed uh listening um we will be back in a month's time and uh have a, a great rest of november yep. see you next month <laughs>